welcome to our Didache Divine Service. We are in Lesson 16 this evening, the first of three on the Sacrament of Holy Baptism. Let us begin with prayer, and then I'm going to do just a a final wrap-up on the Lord's Prayer uh, from last week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Father in heaven, at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, you proclaimed him your beloved Son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Make all who are baptized in his name faithful in their calling as your children and inheritors with him of everlasting life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Concluding remarks about prayer before we go into the sacrament of, the, uh, of holy baptism. No matter how good the instruction is on prayer, teaching you what prayer is, laying the foundation, there is no substitute for learning to pray by praying. It is why every week in the bulletin and posted online is the devotional guide, the congregation at prayer. One of the things that the congregation at prayer does is it reinforces some of what we talked about regarding prayer. Question, what did we say was the foundation for prayer. Beth? God's Word. So, God's Word is the foundation for prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father. Those were His words, God's words, before they became our word. And so the congregation at prayer is laying a Bible verse from God's Word. Like this week, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. There is a prayer, a promise of God's word from the Psalms. There's a table, a psalm of the week. There's a table of psalms to pray. All the psalms are prayers, and like the Lord's prayer, They're first God's word before they become our prayer, but they're given us to pray. And then there are readings. There's a Bible narrative, and we always go through that in our daily chapel, and then there's a second reading as well. Uh, There's a section of the catechism that keeps before us the pure teaching of God's word. This week, it's what is confession. But all of that serves then as the foundation for prayer. We said that prayer was the voice of faith that claims the promises of God's word. So the way the congregation at prayer is set up is that we are receiving the word and taking up the word in our prayer so that the voice of faith, the trust of the heart, can claim those promises. So on the second page, you have then Actual prayers is a prayer before confession of sins based on the catechism. There's the prayer of thanksgiving, receiving the absolution. 
There's in our prayers this week, all of the needs of the congregation locally are listed there. And then finally, the collects for the week, this week the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany, and then the feast of the presentation was February 2nd when Jesus at 40 days of age was presented. And then pray the Lord's Prayer or the morning or evening prayer depending on the time of day. Okay. This serves as a template for a liturgy for an individual or for a couple or for family. So we learn to pray not simply by having a course in it, but by actually doing it. Just like you could have a great course of instruction with a dry marker board on swimming, but you really need to get into the water and practice the strokes to learn how to swim. Prayer is a lot like that. This is maybe a little bit daunting at first glance, but it does say, pray and confess out loud as much from the order as you are able or as your family age and size dictates. So less is more when it's regular. Less is more when it's regular. So you say, I'm just going to pray the Psalm of the Week and then read one of the readings and follow that up with the Lord's Prayer and the morning prayer. Great. That's okay. As much as you are able. So I commend this to you. Again, it's in the bulletin every week. It is posted online on the website as well. Okay? And remember, our access to God in prayer is through the merits of Christ. And our status as baptized children gives us the right to call our Heavenly Father, our Father, and to consider us his children, because that's what we are through Christ. So that leads us into our discussion of baptism today, unless you have a follow-up question on what I just said. Okay? Our Bible reading is Matthew chapter 3. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. And we are going to look at the baptism of our Lord Jesus, which took place at the beginning of his ministry. You're familiar with the nativity narratives when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and, and then when the wise men from the east came. And then we have the one account of Jesus at 12 years of age, and then it's not until he's about 30 years old that the Gospels pick it up with his baptism. And that begins his three-year ministry, which culminates in his death and resurrection. And I'd like you to keep that in the back of your mind or the forefront of your mind or foundationally to you. The baptism of our Lord culminates in his death and resurrection. In our baptism, we are joined to Christ's death and resurrection. Baptism... The baptism of Jesus culminates in his death and resurrection. Our baptism, we are joined to Jesus' death and resurrection. You got the picture there? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus' ministry begins with his baptism. And we see there, at Jesus' baptism, 
all three persons of the Holy Trinity. God the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is in the water, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. It's a miracle. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful symmetry. Okay? And St. Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, Christ's death. Just that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also will walk in newness of life. So that's why I say Jesus' baptism culminates in his death and resurrection. In our baptism, we're baptized into his death and resurrection. Okay, there's a little bit of an overview. Now let's look at the text. Matthew chapter 3, who is the prophet, who is the forerunner, to Jesus' ministry, preparing immediately for his coming. Amy? John the Baptist. He gets that name, John the Baptist, because he was the baptizer. And there are two things that characterized his ministry. Do you know what they were? Well, baptism is one. And what? Uh, that's a, a preaching. Okay, the preaching of repentance, but preaching and baptizing. Preaching and baptizing. Okay? The result is repentance to his preaching, but he's preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and then he's baptizing. So, we're not going to read all of chapter 3, but look at verse 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying in his preaching, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that the only thing he said? Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. No, that sentence is shorthand. What is the preaching of repentance? It's what we talked about at the beginning of Didache when we were studying the Ten Commandments. They show us our sin and how much we need a Savior. Repentance is the acknowledgement of sin whereby we are turned away from self-reliance to reliance upon Christ. I can't save myself from my sin. I need the Lord. So the preaching of repentance shows us our sin so that we flee from our sin and from trusting in ourselves to the Lord Jesus, who is the Savior. And so John is preaching repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand in the Messiah, I'm preparing his coming. In him there is forgiveness. In him there is life and salvation. Repent. Turn from your sin to him. In him there is forgiveness. Okay? Get the picture? So that's a shorthand. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Christ is the kingdom of heaven. He brings in heaven forgiveness, life, and salvation. Okay. Then if you skip to verse 5... And six. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. Now, not the city of Jerusalem, the buildings, but that's a, it's a, uh, all of the population from Jerusalem and Judea and around the Jordan came out to him. 
Verse 6, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. That's what repentance does. If someone is brought to repentance, they confess their sin. Because they've been shown their sin, the reality of their sin, their need for salvation for their sin. So they turn from their sin and they confess their sin, yearning and desiring for the forgiveness and salvation from the Lord. Okay? So they came from all around Jerusalem and Judea and the region around the Jordan. They went out to John and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. The word baptized means to wash. So when they came to baptism, confessing their sins, what were they receiving in this washing? Forgiveness of sins. Okay? Baptism means washing. It's not washing of physical dirt from your body, it's the washing away of sin. Okay? In view of the faith of the one whose way John was preparing. Are you with me so far? Okay, yes? Now skip ahead to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. So Jesus came to be baptized by John. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Now what is John saying about himself then when he says, I need to be baptized by you. What is John saying about himself? I'm a sinner. I need to be baptized by you because you're the one whom I'm preaching is the source of forgiveness. I need to be washed, forgiven by you, and you're coming to me? This isn't right. What is John then saying about Jesus? When he says, I have need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. What John is saying, I'm a sinner. What is he saying about Jesus? You are not a sinner. You don't have sin. Why do you need? I'm baptizing all of these sinners for the forgiveness of their sins. They're coming in repentance, confessing their sin to have their sins washed away. Why are you coming? Do you get the dilemma that he's in? Should I get that? Does that make sense? Okay. Jesus, oh, now, first of all, is John right that, that John, he is a sinner? Of course. Is he also right that Jesus has no sin? Yes. yes. Is he also right that he needs to be baptized by Jesus? Yes. yes. Actually, every baptism that takes place, I'm not the one doing the baptism. It's actually Jesus who is baptizing and giving, as he later says, the gift of the Holy Spirit through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. But I'm only the instrument. 
He's the one that's actually doing it. Okay. So actually, John is right about that, but he doesn't get why. Why does the sinless Son of God come to baptism when I'm baptizing for the forgiveness of sins? I don't get it. All right. Now Jesus says, verse 15, But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Now, what does this mean, this fulfilling of all righteousness? Well, hold on to that question for just a moment and see what happens in Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus, uh, then he allowed him, then Jesus, when he had been baptized, notice, he didn't baptize himself, John baptized him. He came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, And he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove. A dove is white, the symbol of peace from God, and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So who is speaking from heaven? God the Father. So God the Father is speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Son, second person of the Trinity, is in the water. And the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove upon Jesus. So here's a miraculous manifestation of the triune God at Jesus' baptism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Son is in the water, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. At our baptisms, God the Father speaks. And he says, you are my beloved for the sake of his Son, who is the content of the water. And the Holy Spirit descends upon us, who brings the peace of God, the peace of sins forgiven. So back to this, so you see the miraculous character here at Jesus' baptism. But again, if he has no sin, what's going on? Why is he baptized? Well, he says to fulfill all righteousness. Now I'd like you to, you can put your marker here at, Matthew 3, we'll come back to it. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, chapter 1. At Jesus' baptism, there is a very important transaction that's going on. He does not come because he has sin. He rather comes to receive our sin and to make it his own. And not ours only, but the sin of the whole world. And to fulfill all righteousness 
by dying for us upon the cross. Remember the, Bethany, you're in your right spot today where you first said the words over and over for, for us, okay? So Jesus dies for us. He takes our sin. He dies in our place. This is the righteousness of God, that God offered up his only begotten son to the death of the cross for us. Okay? He dies for us as the sin bearer. Now, John, does anybody know who was John's father, John the Baptist's father? Zechariah. Who? Zechariah. And what was Zechariah's profession? He was a priest from the tribe of Levi. And priests officiated daily, daily, seven days a week, at the temple in Jerusalem. And every day there were bloody sacrifices for all kinds of things, sin offerings for all kinds of sin. And the animal was sacrificed instead of the sinner who brought the sacrifice, okay? So that's called substitutionary payment, vicarious atonement, okay? So none of those people that came to the temple were put to death. The animal was in place of, okay? So the animal was a substitute for the people. And all of those bloody sacrifices, to whom did they point? They pointed forward to Christ, who fulfills all righteousness in his sacrifice for sin upon the cross. So what, what we deserved, suffering and death, Jesus took upon himself when he took our sin. So at his baptism, the sin of the world is imputed to him. John the Baptist, the son of a priest, should have realized this. Do you know what they did? They would lay hands on the sacrifice. The idea on the Day of Atonement, you know, they would... The priest would impute the sin to the goat, and the goat was then driven out into the wilderness. The idea, the sins of the people were imputed to the goat, and then carried away outside of the camp, okay? It's called the scapegoat. That's what it's called, okay? Look at what John says in chapter 1 of his... Uh, this is John the Apostle, but he's reporting on John the Baptist, so there's two different Johns here. The author of the Gospel is the Apostle. Verse 29, the next day, this is after Jesus' baptism... John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After Jesus' baptism, John now refers to him as the Lamb of God. What he did not understand before Jesus was baptized, he did after Jesus was baptized. Oh, how foolish I could have been. I didn't understand why the sinless Son of God should come to baptism. How foolish I am as the son of a priest 
who would officiate at all of these substitutionary sacrifices where these animals bear the sins of the congregation, how foolish I was not to realize why Jesus was baptized, that the sin of the world would be imputed to him. But after he's baptized, this is why the Father says, this is my beloved Son, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die upon the cross. So the fact that Jesus is willing to do that, to be the sin bearer, is why the father is well pleased with him. And why John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now look what he says, verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. I mean, he's the eternal son of God. He was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now, that's a strange expression of Jesus in verse 31. I did not know him. Because Jesus was John's cousin. They were first cousins. I didn't know him? What do you mean I didn't know him? He knew him, but what he's saying is here, I didn't fully grasp fathom, understand the nature of his work. He, John proclaimed him as the source of forgiveness. The kingdom of heaven is in him. But how? You know, I need to be baptized by you. Yeah, but how? By Jesus becoming the sin bearer in his baptism and going to the cross so that in our baptism we would be joined to his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and be declared righteous. So he goes on in this text, verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with the two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And that's what a lamb does. The Lamb of God has the sin imputed to him. That's what every sacrifice in the Old Testament for sin was about. The imputation of sin was given to the the sacrifice in the place of the people. Now, of course, those animal sacrifices did not have the power to take away sin apart from the ultimate sacrifice to whom they pointed, namely Christ. So then if you look at some other passages, now this is John. If you... Turn past John, the book of Acts, and then Romans. And then after Romans is 1 Corinthians. And after 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. We quoted this this morning, Cherie, in Bible class. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, The love of Christ constrains us or compels us because we judge thus, 
that if one died for all, then all died. Notice there's the, for us, substitutionary atonement. Jesus dies for us. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And then skip forward, because I'm just wanting to highlight these important verses for our purposes tonight. Remember, Jesus said he was going to fulfill all righteousness. That's why he needed to be baptized. In verse 20, Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin. Who is that who knew no sin? Jesus, the Son of God. So God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God made him who knew no sin his son, to be sin. So the sin of the world is imputed to Jesus. And Jesus, the sinless, unblemished Lamb of God, carrying the sin of the world, goes to the cross to fulfill all righteousness. What the law demands, the wages of sin is death, okay? Jesus pays what the law demands in his sacrifice upon the cross. And it begins there at his baptism in terms of his ministry, where he comes not to have his sins washed away, but to receive the sin of the world upon himself as the Lamb of God who then takes away the sin of the world. In Matthew's Gospel, if you go back to uh, chapter 3 again then, chapter 4 right after this, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, just like the scapegoat. The sin of the congregation laid upon the scapegoat and then driven out of the camp, the idea of carrying the sins away. Okay? Questions. Do you have? Is that clear to you, what's happening theologically? So, so there is, baptism is not as some teach, and this is only in the last few hundred years. Simply a symbol. No, baptism is God's action. As you see at the baptism of Jesus, John the Baptist didn't cause what happened. This is a miracle of God as the heavens are open, the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, the sun is in the water and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. That's a miracle. That's not our work. That's not a symbol. Something was really happening there. The Holy Spirit really came upon Jesus at his baptism and anointed him. The sin of the world was really imputed to Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He really did literally take the sin of the whole world to the cross on our behalf for us. In Isaiah 53, which we, we uh, read on Good Friday, along with this 2 Corinthians passage 
that we just read. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. On Good Friday, we hear, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the same verb bruised as the, seed, the heel bruising the head of the serpent. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This, I'm still quoting from Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord, speaking of God the Father, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, God really did impute to Jesus the sin of the world. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. He became the sin bearer there in his baptism. And as the Lamb of God throughout his entire ministry, he was walking to the cross where he would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Remember where we began. Jesus' baptism culminated in his death and resurrection. Our baptism, we are joined to Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins because he has fulfilled all righteousness for us in his death upon the cross. Going back to what some others teach about baptism, what I'm emphasizing is the biblical teaching that baptism is God's work. It certainly was even in Jesus' baptism, and it is in our baptism. But many teach it as a symbol because they don't see it as God's work, but as man's work. They see it as an act of obedience and something that they do to show that they have made a choice to be a Christian. That's not what baptism is. Baptism is compared with birth, being born from heaven, being born from above. That's in John chapter 3 also. And the parallel is with our own birth, conception, and our birth. None of us chose to be conceived or chose to be born. It was a miracle. So also, the new birth that God gives in baptism is a miracle. It's being born from heaven. One of the reasons that people don't believe in that baptism is anything but a symbol of their decision to be a believer is because of how they view faith. Faith is seen by some as an act of the human will. So that a person from a position of unbelief decides, yes, I will believe. But as we have learned in our discussion of the third article, the work of the Holy Spirit, faith in Christ, repentance and faith, is a miracle worked by God through his word where we're called to repentance and faith in Christ. So, this is why some don't baptize infants because they don't believe that infants 
can believe. And they think of baptism as an act that someone who has decided to believe makes. So children can't do that. So that's why they don't baptize children. But their view of faith is completely different. For them, faith is an act of the human will, an act of reason. But that's not what faith is. Faith is a miracle of the Holy Spirit through the word. It is the living trust of the heart and love for God. So that the spirit creates. And so the view of baptism, the historic view for 1,500 years before the Reformation, baptism was always taught and viewed and understood as a miracle of God's salvation, of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the bestowing of the Holy Spirit, joining someone to Christ, that this was God doing this. It's only after the uh, at the time of the Reformation, after and other groups influenced by human reason and the Enlightenment that saw baptism not as God's work, but as man's work. Okay. Um, and so, back to infant faith. We don't want to confuse a person's capacity to reflect upon the faith, intellectual capacity, with faith itself. Okay. Just like you are a human being, not because you're intelligent or have the ability to reflect upon being human. You are a human being because you're created as a human being by God in his image. Even if you happen to be asleep or comatose or you have dementia, a person with dementia or Alzheimer's may not be able to reflect very much on how their body works, uh, the interplay between body and soul, remember who they are or who their spouse is or who their children are. Are they not human then any longer? No, they're just as much human beings and their life is sacred even if they've got Alzheimer's or dementia. So the ability to reflect and have human reason doesn't determine whether a person is a human being or not. By the way, some would argue that if they no longer can think and reason and function that way, then they should be euthanized. No. Human life is sacred. In the same way, faith is a miracle. And a person can have faith, including infants, even though they may not yet be able to reflect upon the faith and confess it with their mouth. Just as a little baby when the little baby is born, the little baby is a human being. The little baby may not be able to write a 500-word essay on what it's like to be in my mother's womb. But that doesn't mean that the little baby isn't fully a human being, made in the image and likeness of God. So also, infant faith may not be able to reflect upon the beauty and the wonder of God's love in Christ, according to the catechism, but they are still a Christian, made so by God's work. See, So just as the conception and birth was a miracle, so also the spiritual conception and birth is a miracle, that they run parallel to each other. Okay? 
A final thing on this, on infant faith, for example, do you know of any examples in the Bible of infant faith? John the Baptist himself leapt for joy in the womb of his mother. When Mary greeted Elizabeth, John's mother, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, the baby John leapt for joy six months gestation in the womb. Okay. Um, so before I formed you, I knew you. And infant faith is not only possible, it is every bit the miracle of God as the faith of an older person. That's why in Mark 10, and we'll look at that not tonight, but in the third session on baptism. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a mature adult, no, 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 as a little child, will by no means enter it. And what Jesus is accenting there is, what can a child do? You know, those of you who have had children, when they are newborn, what can they do for themselves? Nothing. Oh, they can poop, and they can scream, and they can suckle if the mama's breast is given over to them but they're totally dependent. That's what it is to be a Christian. Totally dependent upon Christ. So children are held up, not as the exception to the rule, but as the prime example of what it is to receive salvation and new life as a gift. Okay. So we'll talk uh, more about that as time goes on. Any questions about this narrative at all. So I, I do want to emphasize again, the church Catholic, small c, universal, first century, second century, third century, fourth century, fifth century, sixth century, seventh century, eighth century, shall I keep going? On the way up into the 16th century, universally taught, baptism is a divine miracle. And children, as well as adults, are to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. It's only when human reason got in there and tried and started to muck things up that there were divergences. Amy. Yeah, the, the, again, yeah, the, those who take the idea that baptism is symbol have a different view about the origin of faith in Christ and what it is. They have the view that faith is the product of human reason, human will. No. Faith is a miracle of God. So their symbol, this baptism is something I do to show that I have decided to believe. That's why infants can't be baptized because they've made no such decision. They're not capable of reason. So it's a different view of faith. 
the Bible under faith, Ephesians, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So to be without faith is to be dead in trespasses and sins. We can't resurrect ourselves, but God makes us alive. And then in that same chapter, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not even of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, so it's a radically different view of faith. Is faith a miracle of God the Holy Spirit, or is it the product of the human will? So that's why infant baptism is rejected in those groups. It's also why baptism is seen as a symbol of an act of the human will as opposed to a sacrament where God acts. But it all, it all begins with a different understanding about faith. Does that make sense? Okay. Other questions? Kevin, did you uh, decide to be conceived? No. Do you have any role in that? Uh... No. No, you just received the life at the time of conception. If that's true of human life, initially, how much more is the new life of faith a miracle by the seed of the word that germinates and by the power of the Holy Spirit brings forth faith? See the parallel? So you must be born again or born from above. That's <laughs> not, it's not talking about a human decision. That's talking about God's decision. Okay, in, in your text here now, and so the Apostle Peter says, baptism, quoting now, baptism now saves you. It's 1 Peter 3.15. Here again, Amy, someone might say, it's not baptism that saves, it's Christ. Okay, but who is the content of baptism. Christ, that's why baptism saves. Because in baptism, you are joined to Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. That's why baptism saves. Because baptism is the reception of Christ, who is our salvation. All right, on page 211 in your book, You have the essence of baptism in these first two questions, and then the benefits after that. I think you need to speak. You need to get some air moving in your lungs. So I'll ask the question, and then you can respond. What is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. So the Jordan River wasn't just plain water, but it was water included in God's command to baptize, which was given to John, and combined with the word of God there with the water. Which is that word of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's the word of God. The command is to baptize. The word of God is the name of the triune God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Kevin, what's your middle name? Andrew. I should have remembered that. Kevin, Andrew, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And water was applied to you with the divine name. There's the essence of the sacrament. What benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Now the first clause is important to note. It works forgiveness of sins. The verb works there. You might have thought, wouldn't it have been better to say it bestows forgiveness or it gives forgiveness? But it says it works forgiveness. Well, what that verb is doing is picking up on this transaction. You know, if I write Bob a check for $100, then he takes that check to the bank and deposits it, there's a transaction at work. The $100 goes from my account into Bob's account. Do you follow? So at Jesus' baptism, the sin of the world was charged to his account. His righteousness was imputed and charged to our account. See, it works forgiveness of sins. This is the subjective thing where we are each... Christ died for all people upon the cross, and in our baptism, it is specifically, subjectively applied to the individual. Okay? Um, and therefore, since it works forgiveness of sins, it rescues from death. Think about what we've talked about with the resurrection. What's the cause of death? Sin. So what's the cause of life from death? Forgiveness of sins. So it works forgiveness of sins, therefore it rescues us from death and the devil and gives eternal salvation. So you see how the forgiveness of sins is the source of rescue from death and the devil and the gift of eternal salvation for all who believe this. So the role of faith is to receive what baptism gives, to receive Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished. Um, so which are these words and promises of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Believe what or in whom? Remember how we have emphasized that faith, or the trust of the heart, always has an object. So faith trusts something, believes something. There is, I've said this before, remember when we were talking about the first commandment and the rich man and Lazarus, there is really no such thing as an atheist. Now, Atheists may not believe in 
God or a God, the triune God, or Jesus Christ as God and Savior, okay, granted. But an atheist does trust in something. And most atheists trust in themselves. So in discussing with an atheist I knew, pushed on this issue, yeah, I, I am my own God. Okay, good. Because whatever you trust in for your highest authority, your ultimate good is your God. And he admitted that. Yes, I am my own God. Because I trust in myself. Okay? There is no such thing as someone who doesn't believe in something. So here in this passage of Jesus, whoever believes, there's an object there. If these are your books, you can write in it. Whoever believes in Christ and is baptized into Christ shall be saved. But whoever does not believe in Christ shall be condemned. You see? So it's a false thing to say it's not baptism that saves, it's Christ. Because that's like saying, it's not Christ that saves, it's Christ. You follow? Because Jesus is the content and the gift of holy baptism. Now, but don't, isn't faith required? Yes, faith is required to receive that benefit. Whoever believes in Christ and is baptized into Christ will be saved. Whoever does not believe in Christ, even if they're baptized, will be condemned because in unbelief they have rejected him. Okay. So, first two questions, the essence of baptism, water, and the triune God, and then the benefits in the next two questions. It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation. So in those catechism terms below, baptism means to be washed, and baptism joins us to the death and resurrection of Christ. The word of promise in baptism is the divine name. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. The command to baptize, or sometimes referred to the, as the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. The corruption of original sin is mentioned here because it's not just that we do sinful things, but that we are sinners. And so Christ, who is not just doing righteous things, but is righteous, is the one who is imputed to us in our baptism. So we are declared righteous for Jesus' sake. So they have the, the righteousness of God uh, next. Justification, or to justify, is to be declared righteous. Condemnation, or to condemn, is to have the verdict of judgment pronounced because of unbelief. And exorcism is the driving out of the evil one. Any questions just about the catechism text before I go on? Because I'm going to take you just to a couple of passages. If you have a catechist edition, uh, so Joshua, you, you don't even have to turn anywhere. You've got it right in front of you on page 212a. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 38 and 39, or if you have the catechist edition, then you can cheat, and it's right in front of you. Otherwise, you'll need the Bible. So Sharon, that's what, okay. 
Because in the catechist edition, the actual text will be printed out along with commentary below it. Whereas in the catechumen edition, it just lists the reference. Okay. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. At the conclusion of the Apostle Peter's sermon on Pentecost, they say, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. They're actually converted by his preaching. The miracle of faith is kindled. And he tells them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So what is baptism for? It is for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So according to verse 38, baptism is for the forgiveness of sins and the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise of baptism of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children, Amy, and to all who are afar off. And the word there for children covers children from infancy on up to, you know, adulthood, every period, but from infancy on up. So the promise of baptism of forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit is for you and your children to all who are afar off. So some, some uh, have said, you know, there's no, there's no place in the Bible where it says anything about infants being baptized. Well, right here it does. The promise of baptism, first of all, promises forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, and it's for children. And for all who are afar off, okay? So it's a pretty clear passage. And in the book of Acts, entire households were baptized. The, the moms, the dads, the children, the servants, and everything, once faith was brought into that house. The same apostle who preached the words in Acts 2, if you look at 1 Peter 3, this is what I was talking about before, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. Here you have this blessed exchange, Beth's Christ for us. Christ also suffered once for sins. The just, see he was the just one, the righteous one, for the unjust, the sinner, that he might bring us to God. That's Reconciliation. You know, what brings about reconciliation is that the sin that separated us from God is taken away. Being put to death in the flesh, Jesus was, but made alive by the Holy Spirit in his resurrection. Why? Because his death took away sin. So the Holy Spirit is the, is the person, as we looked at when we looked at the third article, who, by the absolution, is actually in forgiving sin is bringing new life to us, raising the dead. That's why Jesus, in his resurrection, stands in the upper room. The first words he says to them are, Peace be with you. Receive the Holy Spirit. The word of forgiveness is what raises the dead because sin causes death. So the word of forgiveness, the peace of sins forgiven, raises the dead and reconciles us to God. Okay? So made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also preached to the spirits in prison. This is the descent into hell, where he goes not to suffer, but to proclaim his victory uh, to, those, to those in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared. Noah was preaching to them, and they rejected it. They were disobedient in impenitence and unbelief. So he proclaims to those spirits now uh, his victory. Uh, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an, an antitype which now saves us, baptism. So here, Noah and his family, eight souls in all, were saved from destruction through water in the ark. It was real water, and it was a real salvation for Noah and his family. They were all saved. The rest of the world was condemned. There was no symbolic act there. That was real judgment for the unbelieving, impenitent world and real salvation through water for Noah and his family. And that water radically transformed the earth. The flood, worldwide flood, is why we have mountain ranges, so dramatic um, differences in the topography of the earth that results from the flood. So you talk about a, a new creation, a transformation, that flood, which is a type of baptism, finds its fulfillment in Christ's baptism and our baptism. Say, eight souls were saved through water, corresponding to this baptism now saves us. And not the removal of the filth of the flesh, the sin is still going to remain until our baptism is completed in the resurrection when the corruptible flesh puts on incorruption. But it is an answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens. So our baptism, we still have the struggle with sin. Our sin is forgiven. It's not imputed to us. But on the, uh, in the resurrection, then our baptism will be complete. So remember, we're joined to Christ's death and resurrection. He suffered and died for sins upon the cross and then rose from the dead to immortality and incorruption. We are baptized into Christ. We're joined to his death and resurrection, but that will not come to its completion until we're buried and then raised on the last day. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. I mean, because some of us will be alive when Christ returns, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye for this corruptible flesh must put on incorruption. This mortal flesh must put on immortality. So the filth of the flesh, we're, we're baptized, our sins are forgiven, and yet the filth of the flesh, the filth of sin remains until the resurrection. Okay. And why does it remain? Well, among other things, through the things that we suffer, including our own weakness, we are taught dependence upon Christ, upon his grace. And as Jesus passed through the valley of the shadow of death, bearing our sin to the resurrection, so we will struggle in this life until we finally fall asleep in death to arise in the resurrection. Then our baptism into Christ's death and resurrection is complete. That's why we as Christians emphasize the body so much. Uh, the modern world doesn't. It's also why the body is disdained. 
It's also why uh, so much cremation is going on, which is really contrary to historic Christian practices. Since the Old Testament times, they venerated the body. They wrapped the body, they cared for the body, they laid the body in the grave in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Jesus' body, you know, Son of God was conceived bodily in the womb of Mary. He was born bodily from her womb. He was wrapped and cared for with swaddling cloths by Mary and laid in the manger, the warmest place in the home where all the animals were. He was cared for and nurtured and fed. If the body is is not important, then there was no reason for the Son of God to become flesh. Okay? The physical world, the concrete world, is redeemed from the corruption of sin by the Son of God becoming flesh and blood. So he's born, conceived, born, lived bodily, was crucified bodily on the cross, and rose bodily from the dead the third day. There's far too much Christian, I'll put it in quotes, Christian preaching at funerals that do not emphasize the resurrection of the body. The funeral is not the end. The soul going to heaven is not the end. The completion of Christ's work for the Christian is when the soul is reunited with the body in the resurrection. Okay? And this is why, you know, you're physically baptized with physical water over your physical body, and it is a spiritual physical bath. And our bodies will be raised to spiritual bodies. That doesn't mean they're ghosts. They have flesh and they have bone, but they're immortal and incorruptible. So what God intended, remember when we were talking about creation, God in self-giving love, his nature moved him to create. Sin is what messed everything up. But finally, what God intended at creation will be realized in the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the promise of our baptism. Okay, so very important. Okay, and then um, Romans 6, verses 3 through 11. See, this lesson I go through after the baptism of Jesus, I go through a lot of other passages because I don't want you to see baptism as idiosyncratic. I want you to actually see in the words of the Bible that baptism washes away sin or that baptism saves because those aren't my words, those are God's words. Okay? So here, when we talk about, you know, being joined to Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, those aren't my words. Those are God's words. Look at Romans 6. Do you not know that as many of us, this is verse 3, who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, namely Christ's death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also shall walk in newness of life. So the newness of life begins now by faith, and it comes to completion in our resurrection on the last day. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in our baptism, that the body of sin 
might be done away with, which it will in the resurrection, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin, because sin leads to death, separation from God, condemnation, and punishment. But we're freed from that. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Notice that that eschatological, as you're looking to the future, the day of our resurrection. But that new life begins now, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, which you are in baptism because you're joined with Christ's death, but alive to God, in the promise of the resurrection through the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus our Lord. So another great passage about the significance of baptism. Um, Romans, the book after that is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Remember what Jesus said, permit me to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. I must fulfill all righteousness because the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Remember the second didache. Unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and Pharisees, You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Which means you must have the righteousness of Christ because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Well, if if some of them were those things, how can they inherit the kingdom of God? Because that's the definition of unrighteous. They must be washed. They must be forgiven. Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And you were washed is a direct reference to the washing of new birth in holy baptism. Two more passages. Galatians 3. So after 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the status of sonship is what is given to us in our baptism because it is the sonship of Christ. Because in baptism we have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in terms of salvation, our baptism into Christ gives us all equal status. I don't have greater access to God because I'm a pastor than you have as a young woman, Becca. Okay? You are all, this Becca over here, 
You are, uh, well, or you too, an old woman, an old Becca. Okay, we all have equal status because it, the sonship is that of Christ. So even the women are given the status of sonship because it is the status of Christ's sonship. And you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And in Acts 22, last verse, 16b, the second half, recounting his conversion and what Ananias was told to say to him and do for him, Paul says, uh, Ananias told Saul of Tarsus when he was converted, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It's a cool verse because it just so simply links baptism with the washing away of sin for Jesus' sake. Okay. And those of you who have the catechist edition, I mean, you can read more on those passages in the commentary that's there. Any uh, final questions for tonight? Push the envelope. Okay. Let us prepare for the Lord's Supper. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you invite all who are burdened with sin to come to you for rest. We now come at your invitation to the heavenly feast, which you have provided for your baptized children on earth. Preserve us from impenitence and unbelief. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness and clothe us with the righteousness purchased with your blood. Strengthen our faith, increase our love and hope, and assure us a place at your heavenly table where we will eat eternal manna and drink of the river of your pleasure forever and ever. Hear us, Jesus, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For at his baptism, your voice from heaven revealed him as your beloved son, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, confirming him to be the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation, for you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment, you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, 
forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. of Christ given for you, the body 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 of Christ given for you the body of Christ given for you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed 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 for you. Blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed for you. 
body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. body of Christ given for you, the 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 body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed 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 for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Amen. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.